This episode of Why I Joined is brought to you by the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification USA. Their mission is to empower people through the worldview offered by the divine principle to create God-centered families. We help them free themselves from this terribly oppressive regime which stifled religious freedom and persecuted women. I can't forget about it. Today we're joined by Dan Pfefferman. Raised in a secular Jewish family in Los Angeles, Dan began consciously searching for God when he moved to Berkeley to attend the University of California, where he earned a degree in political science. When Dan attended the first Black Panther Party meeting, he realized how Marxism had infected the civil rights movement with hate. He decided that he needed to answer some basic philosophical questions for himself. When he heard the divine principle in November 1968, Dan accepted it immediately and moved into the church center in Berkeley with other young unificationists. Dan's career has largely been in human rights education, from directing the Freedom Leadership Foundation in the 70s to leading the International Coalition of Religious Freedom in the 2000s. He was regional director of the unification communities in the Midwest and the Pacific Southwest. Dan is now retired and focuses mainly on his music ministry, writing songs, recording, producing videos, and supporting his local church band. I'm Sungmi Holdis. And I'm Nancy Jubb. And this is why I joined. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining Hi. us today. Hello. Thanks for coming on. Well, let's jump right in. So can you tell us a bit about your upbringing, your spiritual background? You know, how were you raised in your family? I come from a secular Jewish family, which means that we were culturally Jewish, but not religious. My dad was an atheist, and my mom was an agnostic. And uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, which was a great place to grow up back then. had the beach just 20 minutes away, and... We had the mountains an hour away, and we had a wonderful folk music scene that I got involved in uh, in junior high school and high school. So it was a really rich cultural uh, environment, and I got to see a lot of uh, blues musicians and bluegrass musicians uh, up close and personal. We got involved in music at an early age. Wow, that's really great. I love folk music. So that must have been incredibly rich <laughs> to grow up right there with that live music. Yeah, the Ashgrove was a was a real music mecca for people like oh, Mississippi John Hurd, Doc Watson, Bill Monroe, all kinds of blues musicians and, and uh, modern folk music, musicians like Buffy St. Marie. And, uh, and we also had concerts at, at the big venues like uh, the Hollywood Bowl, where, you, where I saw Bob Dylan and Joan Baez, oh, wow. and, uh, <laughs> James Brown. It was a great, a great time. Is that where you'd say your love of music and your passion came from? Yeah, uh, I started playing guitar when I was 10. Uh, my dad brought me a guitar. And I listened to Elvis Presley and Harry <laughs> Belafonte and uh, all kinds of different uh, influences, the Everly Brothers, Ricky Nelson, early on. And by the time I was 14, I'd become a pretty good guitarist and uh, joined a bluegrass band and 
in the singer as well. And uh, that's that's where I got my start. And then, I, then I joined blues bands and played around in LA and uh, continued on after I went to Berkeley. Okay, so you did that as like a side gig? Yeah. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about your traditions, like maybe religious traditions in your family? You said you grew up in a secular Jewish family, but were there any, was there any talk of God or religious practices at all? Yeah, there was, uh, mostly initiated by me. Again, kid, I, I asked my parents where I came from, and uh, they, they basically had the evolutionary view and, and uh, materialist view. Uh, and uh, but I also knew about what Christians believed, and so I asked them about that, and they said, "Oh, we don't believe in that." But the there was a woman who took care of me when my parents were working, named Elsie, and and she was a, a black Christian, and she gave me different answers than my parents did. So she told me, "Well, there's, there's God, and and uh, there's the devil." And I began really wondering about those things. And then my dad had a heart attack when uh, I was four. And I began to think about death a lot. And that sent me on a little, mm. uh, probably was the world's youngest philosopher. I began to wonder about <laughs> Four-year-old philosopher. Right. I was asking all the important questions. <laughs> what happens after I die? And is there a God? And where do I come from? And uh, so I, I really wanted to believe in God, but my parents didn't. And so to make a long story short, I, I actually prayed and told God that I couldn't believe in him right now because it was too big a thing for a, a four-year-old or five-year-old boy to be in such a different world from his parents. Wow. Besides, we're supposed to obey our parents, right? So <laughs> my, my heart of filial piety, I, I uh, told God I couldn't believe in him right now, but I would, I would revisit the question. Or I, I said, I, when I grow up, uh, I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll believe in you. That's amazing that you were so cognizant of that at such a young age. And I, I carried that with me. But I kind of put it way in the background. And uh, when I went, went to school in those days, they, they had prayer in schools, but it, it impacted me negatively because my first grade teacher mm-hmm. told the cl- asked the class, who here believes in God? And uh, I knew what she wanted. She wanted us to say yes, but my, my, me and my friend both didn't, my best friend back then. And, I remember uh, dropping my pencil so I could go under my desk and not raise my hand. Uh, <laughs> and, and she even said, people who don't believe in God are going to hell. And it's so inappropriate for a public oh. school uh, teacher. So I have a very different attitude than a lot mm-hmm. of my friends do about mm-hmm. prayer in school. Because for me, uh, being at least uh, consciously an atheist at the time, I. I felt really persecuted for that, and it, it hardened me into a um, being kind of a proud atheist and a and a, a, a rebel against authorities that tried to impinge on my religious freedom not to believe. Shall we say? Interesting. Was that the start of your uh, religious freedom 
fighter spirit, would you say? Yeah, like that was that your origin moment? <laughs> yeah, it, it actually is in, in a funny way. And at, at the same time, I also was still really wondering uh, about God. So that intensified the question as I went through life. But uh, it wasn't until I, I was in my late teenage years that I began consciously looking for God again. Yeah, I know that you you mentioned you know before before we recorded uh, that you were involved in the civil rights movement in high school, so there was something you know there. There was a passion there for maybe other people for righteousness for equality. Yeah, sense of justice. Comes, my family was very much involved with that, and I remember when I was uh, still quite young, it was still in my old neighborhood, so I had to be around eight years old seeing the pictures of the police dogs attacking the civil rights demonstrators and, and, and being really moved by crying and asking my mom, why, why could this happen? How could this happen in America? And being Jewish, we were very aware back then of the Holocaust and, and the uh, persecution of the Jews. And so that gave mm. us solidarity with the civil rights movement. My sister was uh, five years older than me, and she was active in the civil rights movement uh, when she was in high school. So I got involved when I was uh, in junior high school in the uh, Congress on, on Racial Equality. I became the, the vice president of the Southern California chapter of the Student Congress on Racial Equality Corps. Wow. So, what year uh, was that? That was in the, uh, in the, in the 60s, the early 60s. Wow. So right in the midst of that time period, I mean, it must have been it, like it was all over the news at that time, right? Right. And I would go to the trainings where uh, we would be trained in, in uh, peaceful resistance and, and uh, nonviolent protest. And so it, it, uh, I read Martin Luther King and uh, that also seeing where he came from being so committed by his religion as well as by his his uh, desire for social justice, that that provided another gateway for me into uh, thinking again about God, uh, and it also formed the the background of my reaction against the radical wing of the civil rights movement, which started with the uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee became the the one that was really the most radical with Stokely Carmichael and those people that were saying that they had to had to fight. It was a paradox that the snake got taken over by that, that faction. Wow. Mm. Did you see your fellow um, civil rights activists divided? Well, when I, when I went to Berkeley and attended that Black Panther meeting that you mentioned, it was the first Black Pan first public Black Panther meeting. It was in the Oakland Coliseum. I went with a, a mixed group of friends, and it was so shattering. They they made the 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 white people sit in the back in the balcony, and to, to honor the black people, and then this parade of well known. Radicals like like Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown and Kathleen Cleaver Eldridge was in in jail at that point. It, it just this this parade of Marxist Leninist hate 
trying to whip up the people to fight against the pigs and off whitey and all of this stuff and it was uh, it was based on this ideology that I, I i knew there was such a thing as marxism and 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 that that uh, there was a difference between my friends who were pacifists and, and those who were more into uh into peaceful uh, non-violent protests but this was this was an outright attempt to to create a violent revolution in america and that got me thinking that I, i'm really not ready but to to provide an answer to the questions of social justice till I until I ask the, the most basic questions. What is just justice? And is there a God? And mm. is is Martin Luther King the right way to go? Or is Stokely Carmichael the right way to go? And um, that was one of the things that set me on my my internal search. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, just you know the the questions that you were asking yourself i'm sure that whole generation must have been really you know thinking about that too and of course different people were led down different paths and stuff but it's i'm in such admiration that you really kind of dug deep to ask that question like what is real justice in a sense um and even to look at the different types of of movements within the civil rights movements that were going on at the time i think you know, for my generation and and for younger folks, it's easy to kind of look at that time period as kind of like it was civil rights. <laughs> there was right. this movement and just it came up and fought, you know, fought for equality and then it happened, you know, but the to live in the midst of it and to really experience um, it's so incredible to to hear you describe what it was like at that time. The peace movement was an, another thing. I, I was also involved in the peace movement, and a, a big change for me happened when I went with some friends down to the uh, Oakland uh, draft court to protest against the draft. And once again, I saw the the radicals provoke the police intentionally. It was just as mm. plain as day. They were intentionally provoking the, the police to start hitting them, and then. They, they had people in the crowd who were egging us on, trying to turn it into a riot. And it did turn into a riot. They shut down open for three days. I left at that point, and I said, well, this, again, uh, I've got to figure things out here. I, this is, something's going, it's like that song that was so famous in the time. There's something happening here. What it is isn't exactly clear. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, that, that, that was another thing. And I started experimenting with psychedelic drugs and having spiritual experiences and it, it opened up a whole a whole, di whole different way of looking at things i can't recommend that for wow. people but in my case it, it, <laughs> i was looking for god i wasn't doing it for kicks and mm -hmm. uh, and i found god wow can you can you share a little bit about that that moment that you found god well the first the first time was um when the beatles uh first came out with their uh Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Everybody was listening to it. And I was listening to uh, George Harrison's song called Within You, Without You. It's the mystical song about the, the world of illusion and the world of ultimate reality. And mm -hmm. I, it, I started having this experience where I, I left my body and mm -hmm. I went into another realm. 
which was so peaceful and so beautiful. And uh, I really, it's hard to express with words, but it's like when, when people uh, express what nirvana must be with a timeless, eternal, forever moment. And I don't know how long I was gone, but I had I heard this voice telling me, you've got to go back. I didn't want to go back because it was so beautiful. And, uh, I, I, but there was kind of a warning tone that came later that said, you've got to go back, you're, you're going to be in trouble. So I uh-huh. re-entered my body consciously. And, uh, and then I started having all kinds of paranoid fantasies, or maybe they weren't fantasies, I don't know, but I felt like people were talking about me all the time. And I, when I really started thirsting for God, started listening to uh, different preachers. The most important preacher for me was Aretha Franklin's father, C.L. Franklin, oh. who was the greatest preacher I've ever heard. Still, I would still say that he's the greatest preacher I ever heard. And uh, I also liked his theology and still do because he emphasized the importance of a personal relationship with God more than just what you believe, but having a personal relationship mm. with God. But it still left me with a lot of uh, unanswered questions. And when I would go to Christian ministers, they couldn't answer my questions. And I, I didn't like the theology coming from a Jewish background. It was hard for me to believe that Jesus is, is God the Son. Uh, mm. I, I thought, well, he, yes, I can accept that he was the Messiah, but not God. And uh, I wondered if perhaps maybe I was called, I thought I might be the Messiah. So that <laughs> uh, sounds awfully arrogant. Uh, but it, it was it was not arrogant. It was, it was very confusing. And it was a, a very, uh, very confusing time for me. Uh, I had a, a, several spiritual experiences with Jesus and uh, felt that I was being called. I had a sense that uh, I had a mission. And for almost a year, I I went through that kind of a realm of being very much confused and searching, uh, looking for answers. I had a feeling that a lot of it had to do, basically had to do with the way that sexuality uh, was expressed. That also came from a, a spiritual experience. Uh, where I felt that that sex and birth and growth were the most holy, holy things, and mm. yet wow. they also were somehow tied up with all of the, the guilt and, and, and crime uh, that exists in the world today. So in terms of what the divine principle teaches, uh, I was I was definitely prepared. I was I was asking all the right questions and really desperately seeking the answers. Wow, that's amazing. So, what was your first encounter like then? Like coming into um, how how did you meet the Unification Church at that time? I mean, it, yeah, it seems like your experiences were already kind of leading you to some of these understandings before even hearing the teachings. So what was that like when you met the unification movement? It was a relief. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I had been going to different groups that were in the Berkeley area and on campus uh, 
Soka Gatai and uh, Hare Krishna and uh, there was Meher Baba and the Christian preachers. So I, I went to a lot of them. And then I was on the campus. I, I was actually looking to go to a different meeting that day. I, I think it was Meher Baba's group. And they they wouldn't, uh, they weren't open for some reason. I, I thought maybe it was a members only meeting or something. But anyhow, I was sitting there on the campus in the student union. And uh, this woman comes up to me and she says, oh, hi, can I talk to you? And I thought, oh, another one of these Soka Gatai people because they had gone <laughs> to their, their meeting and they were so pushy. And uh, they, they wanted me to buy their book and buy their altar. And I, well, this is not for me. So I said, okay. She uh, said, well, I, I'm with this group, this international group that's studying the teachings of a Korean Christian spiritual master named Sun Young Moon. <laughs> yeah, named, named Sun Young Moon. I never heard of him. Nobody had. And uh, he's called to unite Christianity and Oriental religions. And I said, well, it sounds like exactly what I'm looking for. And she said, well, would you like to hear about it? And I said, yeah. And we can go down into the into the, the coffee shop and you can you can you can teach me. So she she dragged me down. Not she didn't drag, she took me down and uh, <laughs> and uh, taught me the, the first part of the divine principle right there in the in the coffee shop. And uh, I I said I felt at that time like wow this is I've got to hear more I've really got to hear more because this is right right along my what I'm looking for and uh, I said can I can I come and hear more she said yeah sure I said can I come tomorrow and she said mm, not tomorrow because uh, we've got a prayer meeting it's for members only and I said oh how about the next day for the uh, for the next couple of days, I heard the the, the rest of the of the uh, of the teaching from uh, Farley Jones, who was the the uh, center director at that time. And finished, he said, "Well, what do you think?" I said, "Well, I think we've got a lot of work to do." <laughs> wow. wow! And then I met uh, Dr. Ong Edward Ong, who was uh, at that time was a PhD student. And uh, he was sort of the spiritual advisor to the center, the older spiritual advisor to the center. So he said, so are you ready to, to join? And I said, yeah. And so he said, okay, go get your sleeping bag. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I moved in. And at that time, we all slept on the floor on, in our sleeping bags. And uh, I never looked back. So what kind of conversations were you having with the other members? And what were, where were they from? Who were they? There was only seven people in the, in the center at the time. And several of them were searchers like, like I was, new members. One of them was Mike Leone. We, we joined right at the same time. And uh, we were like, we have remained lifelong friends. Basically, I just talked to them about the concepts. My, the, my main teacher was uh, Dr. Ang, who's from a Chinese man from uh, Indonesia. And he was very much into Confucian thought and, and 
that would talk to me about Confucian principles and Taoism, how it related to the divine principle. He always emphasized, uh, check everything by the principle. And mm -hmm. I was I was very spiritual in those days. I was hearing voices and uh, getting revelations. And he cautioned me. He said, I, I've had a lot of experience with people like you who have had these spiritual experiences. And it's very easy for them to get off because they they kind of get blown in the wind. But if you if you really focus on principle and uh, don't go to extremes, talk about the, the mountain that lasts the longest is not the not the sh sharp mountain that juts up into the air, but the, the gradual incline. The, talked about the, the golden mean and shutting myself off from from too many spiritual experiences and learning the principle, studying the principle, grounding the check everything by the principle and don't get swayed by charismatic people so much, but really go by principle. And that that stuck with me. And it, it, it's one of the reasons that I was able to keep my faith over the years. That's mm. so interesting because working in communications, I think that's really what people um, look at our movement and they believe like, oh, these people are all just swayed by a charismatic leader. And yet what you're saying, it seems to be like the very antithesis of that. We didn't even know Reverend Moon in those days. Mm. I, nobody except Dr. On had ever met him. Uh, this was 1968 when I joined. And then he came in 69 and I heard him speak and met Mrs. Moon as well. But it, it really wasn't about him so much. I and mean, in a way it was because we all believed that he was the one, that he was the one that was going to bring about the, this new movement to, to stimulate a, a big change in the world. Mm. But it was, it was all about the principle, the teaching. That was the most important thing. Wow. What was the primary principle that uh, struck you and still sticks with you? Well, the most important thing was the the ideal of the family, and this was something mm -hmm. that I was I was looking for. How does how does God fit in with the family? I grew up with with no Bible. There was we didn't have the Jewish Bible. I didn't have the New Testament. It was basically just figuring things out for myself. So I was influenced more by by evolution and by Freudian thought, secular secular ideas science but when i heard that the principle the, the the ideal of the family that, that that god wanted to work through the family is something you don't even really see in the bible we talk about family values but you don't see any ideal families in the bible mm. you see families that were deeply dysfunctional in, mm. in the bible with people you know having several wives and abraham getting ready to kill his son. What, what was that about? <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the divine principles theory of, of the fall of man, I think is what really struck me because it, it talks about the, the fall of man being not, not a, a literal apple, but having to do with sexuality, the inappropriate expression of sexuality in an immature way. And mm. that really expressed what I had intuited. And uh, 
I think that was probably the thing that it, uh, hit me most in taking that up into, into Jesus and the idea that Jesus was supposed to get married and form a model family. He was the one that was supposed to create that ideal family that you don't see in the Bible. That really, really inspired me because then that gave me a vision for what I could do with my life and complete this mission that I had felt called to, that it had, had to do with, with the family and not um, literally saving the world, but, but starting with perfecting myself and then working in a, in a relationship with my wife and my, and my kids to form a good family. And like I said, it was a relief. Mm, yeah i mean that's i think a unique concept in in our church in our in our faith community that salvation comes through the family and not only through the individual absolutely absolutely yeah so since hearing the principle you know you joined the center and you know since then you've raised a family and your degree is in political science you were active in the civil rights movement and actually, a lot of your work, at, you know, for the movement and your career has been in religious freedom. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. yeah. When did that intersect? In 1969, after uh, Reverend Moon came here for the first time to America, uh, at the end of that that tour, he he gave us the guidance that we we should really try to form some kind of an educational uh, group to educate young people about communism, because he saw that the, the young people, especially on campuses, have been so infected with Marxist ideology, the war in Vietnam was going on. Uh, so we started a study group first, and then we started doing work on the campus. And in Berkeley, that was, that was pretty exciting to stand up <laughs> against communism when all of the activity was on the radical left. So we had some, some exciting times doing that. And I was still in school at the time. Then I, I graduated and I was offered a job at the Freedom Leadership Foundation, which our, our, we still called it a movement back then. We, we didn't change to being a church until 1971 or 72. We called it the Unified Family. And the, so the Freedom Leadership Foundation uh, had a, a bi-weekly international affairs journal called The Rising Tide. So I became the editor of that and uh, studied Marxism and its application more deeply and uh, helped develop a critique and counter-proposal uh, to communist ideology. So that was, that was how that started. And that continued on until about 1977. And what did you see as the impact of that work well there were certainly some exciting times i can i can say that because uh, when when we would try to to teach on the campuses sometimes the, the various radicals the sds and the weathermen and people like that would come against us and, and uh, overturn our tables and try to shout us down oh wow so i i can't say that we were we 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 won, but we formed a, a lot of useful coalitions with people of different attitudes, whether they were conservatives. Uh, there were, back then, there were the Democratic Socialists were divided on the issue of, of the Vietnam War. 
and the ones that supported the Vietnam War, many of them evolved into the, the neoconservatives. And uh, mm. I've maintained relationships with a lot of them over the years, as well as the conservatives. So it, it formed lasting relationships. And uh, it formed this, the sort of the persona of the movement as it uh, tied up a lot with anti-communism. Uh, we supported uh, Richard Nixon, uh, even though we had criticized a lot of his policies, we supported him when he was facing his impeachment. And Reverend uh, Moon issued a, 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 a national statement, a, a public statement, uh, with the theme of forgive, love, and unite. It, it was, in a way, it was inspiring for me, but it was also, I could see it was going to have repercussions because we were growing really, really rapidly in those days. The last mm -hmm. thing you want to do in order to reach out to your primary uh, demographic of, of, of po uh, potential joiners, young people who were searching, is to support Richard Nixon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys must have taken a lot of heat for that at that we time. Did. Not only us, but Reverend Moon, he became famous as as the, the guy who, who wanted to forgive Nixon and wanted America to forgive Nixon. And I think that he was painted with that brush from then on. And he ended up uh, being prosecuted by the by the leftists in the, in the, in the Congress and mm -hmm. eventually ended up in jail on what I think was a trumped up charge of, of tax evasion. Could you speak a little bit to why the movement was like really pushing um, this campaign to forgive, love, and unite with Nixon, especially at a time where I think the American people felt so betrayed by what had happened? Um, like what? What was the reasoning behind that? I think a lot as of it you had to, saw it. Uh, well, I think a lot of it had to do with Reverend Moon's um, experience with communism in Korea. He had been imprisoned in North Korea in, in a labor camp for several years, almost lost his life. Uh, so he knew the reality of of communism, and mm -hmm. and he knew that in, in a in a communist society, a Marxist society, that there is no religious freedom. If the communists had won in Korea, he would have been killed. There's mm. no doubt about it. He would have been killed. And the, and our, our movement wouldn't exist. They don't have religious freedom in North Korea. There's no, there's no real Christian churches at all. So that's where it comes from. And he, he saw the Vietnam War through those eyes. It was the struggle between communism and democracy. And uh, when I went to Vietnam, I went there twice uh, on fact-finding tours. I, I, I came to the same conclusion that the, the people of South Vietnam did not want communism. They were fighting against it. And they were looking to America for um, hope and for support. And mm. uh, so I was, I was really, really sad when we pulled out the way that we did and basically abandoned the country to be taken over by, by the communists. And I feel the same way about what we did in Afghanistan. We, we helped them free themselves from this terribly oppressive uh, regime, which stifled religious freedom and, and you know, persecuted women. And 
now we've pulled out and, and people are just forgetting about it. Uh, I can't forget about it. Wow. So you talked about fact-finding missions. What were those about? The first one was in 1970. Uh, we were invited, a group of us uh, were invited to come to Vietnam and, and meet with different people, student groups, labor groups, political leaders, military leaders, uh, just regular people, farmers. Uh, there were some very interesting religious groups there uh, in, in Vietnam. It's, one called the Cow Dai, which believed some of the same things that we believe about the coming of a new age and uh, communications from the other world. And, uh, they were they were terribly persecuted by the communists. Mm -hmm. Went to their to their temple and, and met with their leaders. Went to some Buddhist groups and met with them. Catholic nuns. One thing they all agreed on was that. They didn't want the communists to take over. And that motivated me to have the, have the courage to stand up against the, the, the communists who've gone to North Korea, like Jane Fonda, and stand on the tanks and basically hope that Ho Chi Minh would, would win. So that's where that all came from. Wow. Mm -hmm. So would, would you say that um, those experiences from those fact-finding tours, was that, because um, it sounds like, being very involved in social justice from a political standpoint, it bleeds over into the religious freedom aspect as well, right? Um, sure. You know, I think a lot of people look at like church and state and keep them separate and it's, you know, nothing to do with each other, but it sounds like it was very much connected in, in the experiences that you've had. Well, as, as an American, the, the, the very basics of American democracy and the Constitution, the First Amendment to our Constitution is that Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of, of, of religion. So religious freedom is, is the key political issue in, in American mm -hmm. democracy. And it's also the key issue in the struggle between communism and democracy. Uh, or at least, you know, Marxist communism and democracy. So it's very much in, uh, at the root. So, yes, separation of church and state is important and it's crucial. And that's why we shouldn't allow the state to be a, a, uh, a militantly atheist state. And we have to fight against that ideologically, ideologically, and sometimes militarily as well. So, I know from the conversations that we've just had personally, I mean, your work in the um, International Coalition for Religious Freedom, I know that a lot of that work that, that you did in that organization um, was even cited by the State Department um, in their uh, state, of, state of Religious Freedom reports as well. Um, what got you into that work and when did that happen? Well, that began in 1987, when the, the immediate issue that we were dealing with at the time was Reverend Moon's was banned from entering Europe through a, an, act, an action of the German government to list him as a, uh, a, a, a dangerous person so that any country that belonged to the Schengen group, which is a, a 
a group of, of countries where they have basically open borders with Germany. But any country who lists somebody as undesirable, then that, that affects the whole area of Europe. So Weber Moon was not allowed into Europe and Mrs. Moon also as well. Uh, and also uh, England was included in a separate listing. So we got involved in, in trying to overturn that. And then, of course, there were other issues as well. And, and as it was a coalition, I also got involved in, in trying to help uh, other organizations that were facing persecution, uh, the Hare Krishnas, for example, uh, and Scientology as well were, were banned in, in Russia. And uh, we spoke out about that. And with regard to the State Department, we, we worked to try to influence the State Department to make some public statements about that. And we, we were successful in that, both on the issue of Reverend Moon's entry into Europe and more recently with the, the issue of so-called deprogramming in Japan, which was where parents have been uh, educated by the anti-UC, anti-unificationist groups in, in Japan to actually kidnap their own kids and uh, hire people to hold them against their will for <clears throat> weeks and months, in one case, even more than a year, uh, in order to, to try to get them to leave the church. There were hundreds and hundreds of these cases. Thank God we were able to, to change that over a period of years. And uh, eventually, uh, it stopped happening so much. It's very rare that it happens anymore in Japan. But those same groups that were whipping up the sentiment against the church in order to to justify this so-called deprogramming are the very ones that are now trying to get the government to shut down the church because of this guy that killed the, you know, the former prime minister of Japan, which is crazy. And the guy hates our church, so he kills the prime minister of Japan, who somehow is friendly to us. And it, instead of of blaming the attitude of this guy who hates our church, they're blaming the church. It's it's a classic case of blame the victim, and and uh, it's crazy. I, I hope we can get it changed somehow because they're they're really facing a, a terrible time over there. Right now. Yeah, I mean. I feel like it's so easy for, um, you know, like I, I have a degree in journalism and I, I studied it and the media has had a history of, of really leaning into sensationalism, right? And kind of like whipping up people into a frenzy and stuff. I think for me, as someone who works in communications, um, it's really disappointing to see the lack of ex like real experts in the news media stories that they're not going to religion academics to ask them, you know, who have studied religions and can speak to um, through qualitative research and scientific observation, what they understand about religious groups instead of these kind of self-appointed cult experts. And I use air quotes very liberally <laughs> when I say that. Everybody has an agenda. And it's, I don't know what they're teaching in journalism schools anymore, but maybe it's not the schools, but the journalism institutions have gotten so much uh, involved in, in, in politics so that it's like you turn, you turn on one channel to hear one side of the story and you, hear, you, you turn on another channel to hear the other side of the 
this this story and nobody's covering both sides of the story or like mm, you said inviting yeah. actual experts who don't have a bunch of talking points based on what political party they belong to yeah i don't know i it's i have a i, I have a personal theory about it <laughs> let's hear it well in my observation, I, I feel that a lot of people get into journalism because there is there is this hope and um, belief that they're doing this because they feel um, that they're contributing in a way to a better world, you know, uh, much the same way that we feel that we're contributing to a better world is just the way that they do that is through writing and investigative journalism and things like that. And I, I do think that there is a need, um, you know, for journalism as the fourth estate, um, quote unquote, uh, to hold power to account in a sense. But the hard part is that a lot of the way that stories are edited um, puts the fear in front because that's what people are attracted to. Um, it's kind of human nature to be like, ooh, that that looks juicy. What is that? And um, and I think that the result is that that we're seeing nowadays is that playing into fear is exacerbating the condition of mental health that we see in our country today, that people have, there's a rise in anxiety, there's a rise in depression and, and polarization. And it's, it's, people are not realizing that as an industry, in a sense, there, there is a, a contribution being made to that exacerbation of people's anxieties and fears because they are um, capitalizing on that in a sense. But I, I think it, you know, it's really hard because the human condition is that so much of the decisions that we make are based off of fears and anxieties and, Ooh, I'm scared that this is going to happen. So I'm going to decide to play it safe or, you know, do these things. And, so it's challenging then to shift the dynamics of, of an entire industry to, to start, you know, writing in a different way where you like play to the positives more. Um, it's, it's hard to create a financial model, like a successful financial model that, that supports that type of quality work. Um, yeah, that, and I know- I think you really hit it on the head there. With, with the financial model in, in journalism, they've got to they've got to sell. We, we used to call, call it sell newspapers. Now it's you know sell clicks. Yeah, I mean, every, everything is based on how many clicks you can get, and what gets the clicks is the sensational or the things that appeal to people's fears, anxieties, hatred, and uh, it's addictive because you you get a Absolutely. A, a rush. Out of out of this feeling that you know, these guys are so bad and I'm so right and they're so wrong, so <laughs> it, it exacerbates the, the divisions rather than uh, bringing about unity. And the whole ideal of journalism as presenting objective facts and letting people decide for themselves is out the window. Yeah, and the the industry itself makes it really difficult for for journalists too. You know, the, the time deadlines and the pressures and the churn and burn culture of like, I need 10 stories by the end of the day makes it really hard to put right. the time in to, to gather all of the information too. Yeah. Um, Having worked in the field, sometimes I, I also know that the headline writers don't always read the story that they're writing the headlines for. They might read mm -hmm. the first paragraph 
to come up oh, with a, yeah. a headline that doesn't match the story, but we'll, we'll get people to at least click on it. Yeah, so you worked in this journalistic, political, social activism world. Um, but, you know, I see a guitar behind you, and I know that there's also this other side of you, <laughs> this yes. songwriter, musician. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a soundtrack to your work? There is definitely a soundtrack to my work, although <laughs> mo most of it is not non-political. It's, it's mostly um, spiritual and romantic. I've been writing a lot of songs lately that are based on biblical themes, trying to understand the heart of the people that were in, involved in these these incredible dramas because when you read the bible it's written in a language that sometimes it's hard to get past but there's some there's some great stories there and so i try to tell them through my music and uh, i also write uh, some secular songs and some hymns and mm. uh, so some of them have become popular in our movement and I'm hoping that some of them will become more popular as I've been doing uh, recording lately and also some some videos, which is a good thing to do when you've got time on your hands like a retired person does. And, uh, <laughs> so I've been, I've been honing my video making skills. And, uh, marketing is unfortunately not my strength, but uh, uh, at least I'm, I'm producing these videos and putting them up on YouTube. Wow. Well, I know I grew up with some of your songs, you know, singing oh, yeah. them in yes. church and at uh, mm -hmm. summer camps. And one of my favorites actually is um, uh, The Lord is One, where it starts with all my brethren. <laughs> yeah, it's like this chant. Oh yeah. So some people might not know that, you know, Dan is is the songwriter for many of the anthems and, you know, those like really powerful moving songs that we grew up with, you know, as yeah. second generation well, unificationists. That song, The Lord is One, actually comes uh, from a, the most fundamental Jewish prayer, the Shema Israel, which goes, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Mm. And even in the New Testament, Jesus recites that prayer. And I think it's the Gospel of Mark, but he recites that prayer. And they ask him, what, what shall I do? What's the most important commandment? He starts with that. And then he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself and love, or love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So mm. that's where that song came from. You know, all of my songs have different influences. There's, there's that, and there's also a, a melody that, that came from an old Appalachian hymn, put it together. It's part of the creative process. What have been your favorite songs that the, you know, Unification Movement has adopted? Well, The Lord is One, the Lord is, one is definitely one of my favorites. I think probably the one that is sung most is uh, The Generation of Righteousness, Mm. which uh, oh, yeah. is more of a, a militant anthem. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like I didn't even write it. it. It it was, I had just gotten back from Japan and on my first trip to Japan, and I, and I saw the, the strength of the Japanese movement, which was, which was very powerful. And I, I prayed to God. I said, God, would you give me a song that, well, not just for me to sing, but for the whole movement to sing. 
And then I went up to the, the little study area in the attic of our house. And 15 minutes later, this song was written. And it's mm. not a simple song. It's the most complicated song I've ever written. <laughs> so I don't feel like it, it was just me. I really felt like I had help on that one. I, I wouldn't call it one of my favorite songs, but it was certainly <laughs> probably the most sung of my songs. And recently, I, more recently, I wrote a song for Mrs. Moon called She Stepped Up. And that, that's one of my favorites because I, I feel that I, I did something that really touched her personally and also uh, captured a moment in our movement's history when Reverend Moon had died and Mrs. Moon had to, had to step into his shoes and plant a flag for herself as a woman <clears throat> leader. She was opposed by so many men, even a couple of her sons. Uh, gave her a very hard time. They're still giving her a hard time. Uh, mm. But I wrote this song called She Stepped Up, and I, I think I'm probably most proud of that. Could you tell us the the name of your YouTube channel so that, you know, if, if people are interested to hear what you've been producing lately, they can check that out for themselves. They can probably just find it by putting my name in the search engine in, in YouTube. Uh, I don't know if it has an actual name, but it <laughs> my YouTube channel, Dan Pfefferman. Well, we'll be sure to include a link in the uh, <laughs> podcast episode on our website so that people okay. can can check that out because the music that you produced over the years, I mean, definitely left an impression on, on me growing up, you know, even Generation of Righteousness. Yes, I think on reflection now, I'm like, wow, we had such very military influence language and even in our holy songs you know smash satan and victoriously marching and you know but um you know when you're like singing those kinds of songs together it really creates this spirit of um of camaraderie of feeling that you are working like actively working towards something so great and beautiful and um i really love that about about those songs that we sang growing up and um so i'm excited for for new people to come into contact with your work and um and well, it's interesting sometimes for me to, to look back over my uh, songwriting career and to see songs that i wrote in the 70s, I could never write songs like that today because my own outlook has changed very differently. I had a, a much simpler black and white kind of faith back then. And now I'm definitely more mellow and uh, not as, as absolute, uh, more understanding that there's not just one way to find God, but there are many ways to find God. Mm, I love all. that. Yeah, that resonates really deeply for me also, I think, really feeling that, you know, in my own journey, that yes, there's so many different ways to connect to God and to, to feel um, inspired and, and what resonates deeply is going to be like very unique to, to each person. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for sharing your story, Dan. And, you know, you've had such a rich life and career and songwriting career that's ongoing. And we just thank you for your time. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for closing out season one with us. Oh, okay. Thanks a lot. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Why I Joined. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about the Divine Principle Worldview, you can visit our website at www.familyfed.org. Thank you.